Our Bible readings take us to the end of that letter that Peter wrote that we call 1 Peter. We're going to gaze at selected verses in the fifth chapter of 1 Peter, beginning in verse 6 and reading through verse 11. But before we read God's Word out of 1 Peter, I want to just remind you and help encourage you to pick up with the Bible readings for the Christmas season. Notice over here to your right and my left, we normally would have an Advent wreath set that we use to heighten uh, the Christmas story during the Sundays of Advent. This year, we're going a little different direction. What you have here is what is called a Jesse tree. If you've ever looked uh, into your own family background, I know I've kidded at times about delving back into my own Hatfield past, but if you've ever looked at your family tree, it can be an amazing discovery, finding out as all of the branches of your family go back for years and generations. Well, the Bible does that with the genealogy of Jesus. It says that he came from the root of Jesse, and Jesse is that character, that man in the Old Testament that God blessed. There's a tradition that has arisen out of this idea of the root of the tree of Jesse. It comes from the Celtic tradition, and it's called the Jesse tree. That's how we're going to punctuate and emphasize the Christmas season this year. On the limbs of this tree, we will be discussing some different points of how God has used the root of Jesse to bless the nations, to bring us the birth of the Savior, Jesus the Christ. There are ornaments that represent the different stories. And centuries ago, when people could not read and they didn't have writing material, they did it visually. And looking at the ornaments on a Jesse tree, they could point to one and remember and tell the story of God's love over and over again. The readings that will begin the first Sunday of December, which is a week from today, tie into this idea of these ornaments on the Jesse tree. But we also have a kit for each one of you, especially our families. We have a Jesse tree for you to take home and use in your own home. You'll see that it's a poster size. Jesse tree. It has the scripture from Isaiah, the prophecy. You can take this and pin it up on your wall at home or put it somewhere where it can be seen and visible. And then each and every day, as you read the Bible readings, you'll be able to take the ornaments that are printed here. You will cut them out. You will hang them by a ribbon or a string and put them on or tack them on your own Jesse tree at home. The background of the readings is right here on this green sheet. Some other ideas to use if you've got a, a tree of your own, perhaps, that you would want to use instead of this one that we put on the poster for you. But we want to encourage each and every family to pick up a Jesse tree kit. You can get them out at a table in the atrium. Wayne Cotton will be standing there or someone that would represent our staff will be there to put one of these kits in your hand. I wanted to spend a few moments this morning emphasizing it because it will be key to your understanding the real nature and the real message of the Christmas season. So, the Jesse tree with a candle at the top that represents Christ, we will light that candle during our Christmas Eve services. Before the 24 or really 25 days, including Christmas, there will be an ornament, there will be a story from the Bible that will relate to the life of Jesus. So, 
Take advantage of it. We put it together for you. We wanted you to have it. The cost is very expensive. It's nothing. So all you've got to do is pick one up and begin preparing your own heart and your own life, and that perhaps of those within your family, to begin discovering the family tree of Jesse, the family tree of Jesus. Our readings in Scripture today take us to the fifth chapter of the letter of 1 Peter. We conclude our readings of this amazing letter today as we look into shifting gears and moving into the Christmas season. But it's that fifth chapter, those verses that begin in verse 6 and read through verse 11 that can give us a lot of material, a lot of encouragement, a lot of motivation to follow the Lord Jesus each and every day that we live. Let's take it just a couple of verses at a time, discuss it, and then ask God to bless not only the reading of His Word, but our studying of it so that the decisions we make as we leave this service today could be those that encourage us and help us to live as God would have us to live. It's those first two verses, verses 6 and 7, that talk about the fact that character counts. Notice what God's Word says. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon Him, because He cares for you. Of all the things that you and I cannot do in our spiritual walk, we list them out each and every day. We have to remind ourselves of the fact that we cannot live the Christian life on our own strength or in our own strength. We can't muster up enough commitment within ourselves to do what God wants us to do. The Scripture is very clear about that. We cannot save ourselves. We know that. Salvation is a gift of grace that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. We cannot do the work of the Holy Spirit in our own power. We know that. We have to depend upon the indwelling Spirit of God to empower us. And we pray that God's Spirit will lead us. Those things we cannot do. We have to let go and let God, some have said. We have to understand and know from the very outset that if we try to live by our own set of rules or if we try to please God and, and do it upon our own strength that we're going to fail miserably. The Scripture teaches that over and over and over and over and over again. But God does set us free to pursue certain things. And we have right here in Scripture what I would consider to be a green light, a green light to go for humility. You notice the Scripture says, humble yourself. Scripture doesn't say, save yourself. The Scripture does not teach the Spirit of God will come as you muster up enough commitment. But the Scripture does tell us that there is a spiritual trait that we can pursue with our whole heart, and that is pursuing humility. If you go through and do a word study or just on a computer Bible, if you've got one at your disposal, and just ask for that program to sort through all of the times when the Bible uses the word humble or humility or humbling, you will find that more times than not, nine times out of ten, 
the scripture always ties yourself to that action. So if you want to do something, if you want to be proactive of all the things you've tried to do and failed miserably because you can't do those certain things without the power of God, you have to surrender to Him. Here's something you can pursue. Here's something you can go after with your whole heart. You've got a green light to go for humility. Humble yourself. Well, what does that mean? We've talked about it before. I grew up on a version of the scripture called the King James Version. It's a, a very beautiful rendering of God's words, very poetic. Many of the passages that you may recall from memory in times past come from that translation. But when the King James Version translates this word for humility, when it describes the man Moses, it says Moses was a meek man. M double E K. In English, we always tend to associate words that rhyme. And for me, meek always rhymed with weak. And I consider meekness to be something I wouldn't want. That it would mean weakness. It would mean someone who had no, who had no gumption. Someone who had no commitment. Someone who wouldn't take a stand. For Moses to be called a meek man, and my way of thinking meant that he was a weak man. But nothing could be further from the truth. For the biblical word meekness from the King James, it may sound a little strange. We don't use that word too much in our vocabulary today. It means anything but weak. For humility at its core is that idea of having someone's strength under the control of someone else. The analogy of one who trains an animal. The training of an animal doesn't make the animal weaker. It makes the animal it makes the animal's strength be controlled. So that horse that's been broken, broken doesn't mean the horse cannot gallop as fast or make the turns any quicker or any less quick. It means that when the rider is on the back of the horse or in the saddle and has his or her hands upon those reins, a broken horse means one that's under the control of the one who guides the reins. That's what humility is. It doesn't make you weaker in the sense that you can't function. It doesn't mean that you no longer have an opinion. It doesn't mean that you no longer can move forward with boldness in what God wants you to do. It simply means that you're attentive to the will of God in every aspect of your life. That's humility. And the Bible says, go for it. Practice it each and every day. Humility is something that we don't relate to too much in our day and time. If you look at the heroes in our society today, many of those heroes are athletic figures, sporting figures, and the idea of being humble as an athlete seems to be one that we don't practice that often. You hear the trash talking. You hear the fact that my team's going to beat up on your team. Or I'm going to make sure that, that I come out on top and I guarantee a, a win today for my team. That's anything but humble. But we come back to the scripture and remember the true humility is something we pursue. It's something we go after. It's something that we practice each and every day. The Bible also tells us in that seventh verse to cast all of our cares upon him. Not just some of them, not just a selected few, 
Not just the ones that you've decided at this day and time that you no longer want to handle on your own. But the Bible says to cast all of our cares upon him. And this command, really, this imperative uh, word, this message to encourage us to cast our cares upon God is not meant to be negative. It's meant to be one that causes us to look at the God who created us and to know that he loves us and that he cares for us. He's concerned with us and he will take our burdens away from us. Those are some things we can go for. That's what God's word says. Recognize then resist. Verses 8 and 9. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers who were in the world. Interesting words. When you think of the devil, when you think of the power of evil, satanic forces, most of us think of a a figure who is dressed in red, who has a tail, who has pointed horns on his head, and who carries what? Pitchfork. Pitchfork. I mean, how much more laughable can you be when you think of the devil? You notice that we don't get that idea of the little character in red with the pitchfork from Scripture. Of all the notions that Peter could have taken, of all the analogies Peter could have made to the power of evil, he chose that of a lion, that of the king of the jungle. But he wasn't looking at the lion as king of the jungle here. He's looking at the simple fact that the lion has the strength to devour. Maybe you noticed in the paper a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was the week before last sometime, that uh, the, the lions that are part of the Dallas Zoo, they had a tragedy that one of the lions killed one of the other lions. Something that generally never happens. But then they had to realize that this male lion was provoked in some way, shape, or form. And in one quick instant, bit into the throat, of one of the other lions, killing that lion instantly. That's the kind of image Peter gives to the power of evil, to Satan in our lives. Someone who is lurking about, waiting for the opportunity, not to just grab us by the the neck and to pierce us and kill us, but this word here, seeking someone who he may devour, really literally is swallowed whole, completely engulfed. That's the image that Peter gives to the power of evil that is ever-present among us. Now, the way I see it, I see that there are, in, our, in our world today, there are two extremes when it comes to dealing with the power of evil. On one hand, on one extreme, you have the person that just ignores it altogether. You have the person that has, has bought into the idea that, that the power of Satan, the power of evil is just as ridiculous as the man in the pitchfork in the red suit with the horns on his head and the tail. 
that it's just a cartoon character. It's just someone's, the figment of someone's imagination. And so there are people, and there are believers today, who discount the power of evil on one extreme and just ignore it and act like it's not there. That's not, that's not a good thing to do. On the other extreme, there are those who over-dramatize the power of evil. Have you ever known anyone like that? Someone who is so obsessed with the, the spiritual forces, with spiritual warfare, that they talk more about the spiritual powers of darkness than they focus upon the Lord Jesus and the grace of God and the power of Almighty God. I remember people uh, telling me years ago that uh, I shouldn't play with a Ouija board. Well, I never played with one anyway. Never liked it, those kind of games. But there, there were those people, I remember, that focused so intently upon that game where you are supposed to be able to find out answers from the power of darkness. But they were, they were immersed in it. They spent an inordinate period of time. And it's almost as though they were consumed with the study of the power of evil. But they could do little else in their lives. Peter, I think, would say, you've got to avoid this extreme of pretending evil isn't there. And you've certainly got to avoid the extreme of over-dramatizing and focusing upon evil. There is a middle road, and that middle road is simply to be watchful, to be waiting, and to stand firm and resist the power of evil when it comes your way. That's literally what he says. Resist him firm in your faith. And how do you do that? Once again, just like character back there in humbling yourself, practice seems to make perfect here. Practice makes perfect. Don't practice in the sense of over and over and over again focusing upon evil, but prepare your mind and prepare your heart and build within your life those character traits that when evil does confront you, And when you do sense the power of darkness engulfing you, when the temptation comes your way, you will be ready because you have been practicing the presence of God in your life. That's what God's Word tells us we can do. And then it's these two verses, 10 and 11, that that draw a, a conclusion to this entire letter. But it gives us a description of the character God wants to build in our lives and what He's going to do in our lives. It says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's Peter say in these closing Words, he goes back to that timeline. After you have suffered for a little, remember how long that is. It's just as long as you live. That was Peter's perspective. That was his timeline. He saw that this present life as being just a little while compared to eternity. And he was telling us in no uncertain terms that we could expect trouble and temptation. We could expect this roaring lion, this power of evil, to be lurking about seeking someone whom he can devour, seeking someone that he can tempt, that those things will only last as long as you live. But in the meantime, God is going to be about 
building character in our lives if we will focus upon Him. And He mentioned four things. We just listed them out. He will do what? He will perfect you and me. Interesting, that word perfect in 1 Peter 5 is the same word used when Jesus approached those first disciples on the Sea of Galilee when Peter and James and John were mending their nets. Perfect, the same word for mending the nets of the fishermen, putting it back together, making it stronger. That's what God is going to do in your life and in mind. He will perfect us. He will put us back together again. He will also confirm us, the Scripture says. That word confirm is based upon a root word in the Greek language of one who has support, of someone who is balanced. Once again, you look at that power of evil, two extremes, You don't want to be on this end and ignore it. You don't want to be on this end and be obsessed with it. You want to take a a road, a path that's balanced, that acknowledges the power of evil, but also acknowledges the power of God. He will confirm us. He will build that within our lives. He will strengthen us, the Bible says. Strengthen sounds just like what it means, but this word, this particular word for strength in First Peter is linked to the term or the idea of a power to act, the power, the willpower, the strength to act upon those things that are right. Isn't that something to pray for? Isn't that something to build into your life? The power to act upon that which God deems to be right and good. And then it says that he will establish us. Same word and idea of the firm foundation that we find in the Gospels when Jesus talks about the the house built upon the rock. That our lives will be continually built by the power of God as we humble ourselves, as we practice his presence. That he will establish us on the firm foundation of his word. That's what God's word promises you and me. January 15, 2009 was a day that in the beginning seemed very normal. In the end, most people considered that they had witnessed a miracle. It's interesting. For on Thursday, January 15, 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 was scheduled to leave LaGuardia Airport for a flight to Charlotte, North Carolina. It took off at 3.26 p.m., and the captain was a man named Chelsea Sullenberger III. Now, just those facts right there probably bring to mind many, many of you to the memory of what happened on that day. But just in case you missed it, let me remind you of what happened to this flight on this particular day in 2009. Everything went fine. All the pre-flight checks on the Airbus 320 were just right, and they lifted off. And within two minutes of takeoff, that's when they got in trouble. You remember what happened? They ran into a flock of Canadian geese. One geese can cause problems with a jet engine. A flock of geese, big-time problem. Airports spend inordinate amounts of money trying to scare birds away from the flight path of jets. But this particular day... It wasn't to be. And they lost power to both engines instantly. 
Now, here's what's amazing. When it happened, Sullenberger, the captain and his co-pilot, immediately had to make some decisions, instant decisions, based upon what they were going to do. They knew there were a couple of local airports out on the horizon, but they didn't think they had enough time or enough speed to get there. And if they didn't get there, the traumatic loss of life on the plane and on the ground would have been tremendous. They looked down and saw the New Jersey Turnpike. It was a good runway. The only problem was it was jammed with cars. They couldn't take that as an alternate route. The only other option was to land on the Hudson River. They made their decision, and then they had about two and a half minutes once they made that decision to do the following things before they were going to have to land. They had to shut down the engines completely, which meant that they would be on battery-powered backup. They had to set their speed before they shut down the engines. They had to adjust the glide angle, which meant the the, the angle that the jet was going to come in, and they had to point the nose down in order to keep their speed. They had to disable the autopilots because they had to be in control. One important thing they had to do was to employ what they called the ditch system. It was the procedure that would seal up all of the openings of the jet, all of the air intake valves, so that when they landed upon water, it wouldn't immediately fill with water and sink. They had to turn a hard left so that they could approach the landing on the Hudson River going south with the current of the river. And then after banking that hard left to line up to be downstream as they landed, they had to straighten out the tilt and the angle of the wings because if you landed on water just a little bit this way or a little bit this way, the wing would catch the water and it would spin and tumble like a gymnast and hit the uh, water and break apart. They had to do all of those things, and we know that they did, and they landed, and not a life was lost. The last image we have is Sullenberger walking through the cabin to make sure everyone had gotten out on the wing and on to safety, and then the last thing he did, television tells us, he ripped off his shirt and handed it to a passenger that was shivering in the cold, and people walk away from that and say, it was a miracle. And I don't deny the fact that the miraculous was involved. But I also know that you had a pilot who had practiced over and over and over and over and over again certain things that came natural to him, that he was not born with that ability. If you and I had been in that cockpit, what would we have done? Well, I'd have had to have looked up the book to figure out what to do. Any other pilots would have had to have gone through a checklist perhaps or decided. And in the midst of all that, it would have been too late and lives would have been lost. But you have a man who had practiced so many times over and over and over again that those things and those decisions came almost second nature. Because why? Because he practiced it over and over. Yes, the miraculous was involved. Just as God uses the miraculous touch of a surgeon to save lives. So what's the point? The whole point, my friends, is we practice humility. We humble ourselves. We practice the patience of God. And so when we find those times in our lives where we're tempted to gossip, what do we do? 
We stop because we're practicing the presence of God. And that doesn't include gossip. When you determine that you have the right to meddle in someone else's affairs in their personal life, you what? You stop because that's not the way you would react as a child of God. When you stumble into that temptation of that sin that you may think is secret, you stop and you begin to practice the presence of God and the power of God. Bitterness feelings, following the crowd at school, you just fill in the blank for whatever it is in your life. If you want to have the presence of God and the power of the Spirit of God upon your life, the Bible says practice that presence. Humble yourself. You and I will be no more prepared for those kinds of situations if we don't anticipate it and we don't practice the character of God for He has promised to perfect us and to establish us and to strengthen us. That's what God's Word says we can have. Our Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the opportunity to gather here in this place to acknowledge Your power. And to pray that in these closing moments you would speak to us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We offer an invitation as we conclude this service today. For it could well be that there are people here that need a special touch from God. You're ready to to follow Him in obedience. Maybe it's to accept Jesus Christ into your life for the first time to become a follower of the Lord Jesus, to ask Him to forgive your sin, to become His child. Maybe obedience today for you means following through and experiencing believer's baptism because you know the Lord but have yet to follow through with that important symbolic act. Maybe obedience for you today is joining this church if this is where you belong and this is where God is leading you to plug in. Maybe obedience for you today is practicing His presence in certain areas of life where you're stumbling. You can't expect to act as God would have you to act if you don't focus on it, if you don't practice it. So begin that that practicing today. Begin that journey today. Maybe you just need someone to pray with you today. Ray Lowry, Sandy Tambor, Lombaugh's up in the balcony. These people are here just to pray with you. So that's God's invitation. And let's respond to it right now. We stand together, we sing, we wait for you here in the front. Won't you step out right now?